the ninth conference of the retreat, sifts through the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of St. Paul to take note of the many women given passing mention in these texts, while revealing the highly significant roles of leadership, influence, and service played by women in the foundation and spread of the church. So the topic for this morning is the women of the early church, um, for which we have uh, wonderful sources. <laughs> the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of Paul, um, which might be a little bit skewed. <laughs> we'll take a look at some of that kind of thing and introduce some other, some other texts that may or may not have any um, credibility or validity, but they're fun and interesting <laughs> to, to look at. So one of the things we seem to know pretty much for sure without any ambiguity from the witnesses of the, the early documents of the church is that um, it was the women who stayed at the cross. And for the most part, the list of the women who are at the cross are the same women who go to the, to the tomb on Sunday morning. Luke's gospel even has them present at the burial of Jesus. Uh, noting where he's been buried, and then they return for the Sabbath, which would preclude as sun is setting on Friday afternoon, the possibility of doing any physical labor, which the process of burying someone would certainly involve, uh, was forbidden. So they have to wait through the Sabbath. Um, and their only intention is to give the body of Jesus the respect it deserves as one who is loved, one who is uh, dignified in the body. And, and in, and in, Jewish, in Jewish Christ, um, the Jewish tradition, while corpses were uh, not necessarily prized because you could become unclean by touching one, the respect for the body was very important and that the body be prepared properly for burial was very important. So while he has been uh, executed uh, in a in a manner uh, designed by the Romans to be the ultimate shaming experience, the completely stripping of any kind of dignity whatsoever to a person, to expose their utter disgrace to the whole world. The women are intent on making sure that this body that has been so, so defiled and diminished and the physical pain is only a fraction of the indignity that's afflicted upon a crucified person. They are intent on making sure that uh, this body is given the dignity it deserves as uh, someone who is a child of God. Um, and that's their intention. And they have to wait through the Sabbath to get there. And then early in the morning on the first day of the week, they find the tomb empty. That's all. They find the tomb empty. Later, the Gospels, John Gospels in particular, say that Mary Magdalene has an appearance of the risen Christ before she returns to the apostles or to the disciples or to the others who are gathered. We're not sure who's gathered in that upper room over that Sabbath, Sabbath weekend. Um, you can just imagine it was a pretty long weekend for them, not knowing what on earth was happening and feeling their own uh, disillusionment with themselves as well as their disillusionment with everything they put their hopes in uh, and not able to move because on the Sabbath you can't run away. 
So, of course, we know the first thing that happens on Sunday morning. The women run to the tomb. They, they return, and two of them say, we're getting out of town. These people are crazy. <laughs> Ever have one of those moments? <laughs> you look around at the community of believers and say, this place is crazy. These people are crazy. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> that is the story of the road to Emmaus. And it's interesting how the risen Lord accompanies those two disciples um, and walks with them away rather than insisting they return. He follows them and, and listens to them and hears their hearts burning within them. But that's a little bit of a digression. Meanwhile, the women are the ones who bring the news to the gathering of the church in the upper room that the tomb is empty. That's all. The tomb is empty. Mary later, it's, you know, that reports her scene. Um, it's interesting. One of the, for the most part, the synoptic gospels claim, and John's gospel claim, that when they proclaim this message about the empty tomb, they are greeted with utter disbelief. That can't be the case. Or if it is the case, there's foul play involved here. But in Luke's gospel, Peter hears this news. Now, Peter must have had the longest weekend of everybody. Um, he's absolutely, his, his entire ego has been completely shattered. There is nothing left of Peter the rock. And yet he, unlike Judas, stays alive, doesn't despair, but he's got to be in a, in a terrible state not knowing how this is going to solve, how he's going to be able to live with himself any longer. He hears the news, the tomb is empty, and the possibility that it invokes that indeed Jesus might be alive. I wonder how that struck Peter's heart. Like, that's great news. Oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> because if he's alive, he's going to look me in the eye and say, you're an utter, complete failure. Get out of my sight. But Peter springs up and runs to the tomb. We hear Peter and John running to the tomb in John's gospel on the strength of Mary's testimony. But all of the sources agree that it was the women who bring the news of the resurrection, who announce the empty tomb. They just say the, the tomb is empty. And I find it very curious that like all these historical sources that I've been exposed to over the years of studying this stuff, um, say the testimony of women had utterly no validity and therefore that it was women who were bringing this testimony is the truth that it must be the truth. Okay. <laughs> right. Nonetheless, the church has clung to the reality that it was the testimony of women and kept saying that over and over and over again. So this first, first um, foray into the new life of the resurrection for the church is based on testimony that has absolutely no validity in the world at the time. And yet it is received because of that, as therefore it must be true. That's a puzzle that he'll keep wrestling with somehow or another. Um, they are told to go and announce the good news. And, Actually, they're not told to say anything. Just They're told, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. 
So the first gathering we see in, in the Synoptic Gospels are the 11 in Galilee experiencing the risen Christ. In John, they have the upper room experience on Easter Sunday evening um, and the doubting Thomas scene and all that kind of stuff. But in the Synoptics, it's the 11 who go to Galilee and then are sent back to Jerusalem to wait. But when they are gathered back in Jerusalem and the Acts of the Apostles picks up the story, it's not just the 11. It is many. It may have been as many as 120. It may have been more. Who knows? Who, who's counting in those days? But what is clear is that when that, that gathering of that group goes and is told to wait for the coming of the Spirit, it is unambiguously true that it is not just men. There are women very much among them, and the portrait is painted that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is right smack in the middle of the whole group. And so when the outpouring of the Spirit comes upon the church, it doesn't fall just on uh, males. It falls on males and females. Although we don't hear too much about what the women did after that. We don't hear, only hear about Peter. We hear everyone hearing them speak in their own languages, and we can only assume that it was both the men and women proclaiming this truth that everyone is hearing in their own, in their own language. And then Peter takes the stage and gives his great speech, having been completely rehabilitated somehow from a shattered shell of himself. And then we have this um, the kind of women just show up in bits and pieces. They're, they're named. They're mentioned. There aren't many speaking roles for women in the Acts of the Apostles or in the letters of Paul. But there sure are a lot of them named and talked about and mentioned, leaving us to, to infer what their roles must have been. And there's lots of inferencing going on. And some of it um, seems like it's got some, some validity to it. Uh, these women um, in this culture seem to be leaders. There's a, um, you know, there was, so there's, I mean, the first century of, of, the, of the first century in the Mediterranean world uh, is still, a, I think, a big mystery to everybody in, in those kind of stuff. It's, things are happening. The Roman Empire is just absolutely starting to reach the pinnacle of its power and control over the world. So that's happening. This is the, you know, Caesar Augustus has consolidated the power of Rome, and it is pretty extensive. And now it's just a matter of Rome managing to administer the whole world. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of little rebellions popping up all over the place. Um, but it was a culture that was dominated by the empire, and the empire exercises control by violence. It was probably a pretty dark place in which violence ruled. And one of the interesting things about early Christianity is that um, it seems that one of the groups of people that were attracted to early Christianity were former Roman soldiers. And that's a great puzzle, except perhaps those former Roman soldiers saw firsthand what Roman culture, Roman religion, Roman power could do and the absolute ineffectiveness of a superstitiously based re religion to do anything about it. 
And somehow or another, there was many Roman soldiers who heard the preaching of the early church, whether it was coming out of the mouths of men or mouths of women, we don't know. Somehow they were attracted to this. It was a world in which um, faith and religion uh, was rampant, but for the most part, it was an empty faith. It was, it was not, it was superstitious. It was, um, you know, trying to, it's, you know, paganism in all its forms of, and Judaism stood out as something different, a very different message with a very different understanding of the transcendent God who is the sovereign of all and a very different understanding of the place of human beings in that, in this creation. And so there, it was true that lots of Gentiles were attracted to Judaism and they were welcomed. They were welcomed in synagogues. They were hearing the word of God. So when Paul goes into synagogues, he's not just preaching to Jewish people. He's preaching to Jews and Gentiles alike and getting opposition from both alike. Um, it's you know, not just, not just the, the Jewish people finding his message threatening. Um, the real threats were to the, uh, the merchants selling idols, little statues. The religious good shops of the world were, were profoundly, profoundly opposed to Christianity because it meant their business was being cut into very, very badly. Um, so we start seeing the adventures of the apostles as they go through the Acts of the Apostles. And then we start hearing about the letters of Paul, which of course are earlier than the Gospels. And so in the official canon of Christianity, it's the, the letters of St. Paul that have the possibility of being the most authentic. The Acts of the Apostles is a strange book. Um, someone described it as this was, this was uh, if the church was going on a public relations campaign for itself in the early centuries, the Acts of the Apostles is it, um, which may or may not be telling the truth. It's like our vocation promotions, <laughs> you know, how they describe our communities. <laughs> it's like, isn't that great? Sure. <laughs> um, and but that's what we have in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, there's a, a figure who shows up pretty early in the Acts, a woman named uh, Tabitha or Dorcas, as it's translated. That's what it says. Her name was Dorcas, which so is translated Tabitha or the other way around. I can't remember. Um, and she's described as someone who is highly active in the community. She's a, a doer of good deeds and an organizer of almsgiving. She's clearly a leader. Uh, and she dies. And the community of believers in this town near Joppa, it's all that it's described as, are, are aware that Peter is nearby. And they have lost their leader. And they are distraught. And she's worthy enough to summon Peter to come and they have enough faith somewhere along that somehow Peter's going to do something. And indeed, Peter raises her from the dead. The only example of, um, well, maybe Paul did it too, but the first example of someone other than Jesus raising someone from the dead in the, in the church. But Tabitha Adurcus is valuable enough that her community wanted that. She was not disposable. She was not replaceable although all of us, including her, eventually are replaceable. 
But in that moment, she was valued enough that the community called upon the spirit to bring her back to life. Um, we hear a little bit later in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, that great story, I think we even I've heard it this week, about um, Peter uh, being in prison, locked in prison, and uh, the angel coming and setting him free. Um, just a, it's a funny story because like, you know, now what? Okay, the chains are off, what do I do? Uh, walk out. <laughs> Everyone's asleep, just walk out. And then there's Peter out on the street. Now, now okay, now I'm out, now what do I do? Um, at any rate, he finds himself heading to the home of a woman named Mary who is the mother of John Mark, who ends up being one of the companions of Paul on his missionary journeys. But Mary is the mother of John Mark, and it's in her home that the community is gathering. So Peter, the prince of the apostles, has just been released by an angel from prison, and his first stop is to the home of a woman who has gathered the community. And the woman receives Peter into the community, into her home not the other way around or anything like that. And he's sent there by the power of the spirit, but it's clearly that the organize, you know, this organization of the church was hidden. And the part of the hiddenness of it was that it's hidden in the homes of women, perhaps. Um, and then the apostles who are visible, when they need to hide, they find where the church is hidden. And take refuge there. Um, of course, uh, Paul's letters, um, we hear, or in, in the Acts of the Apostles, and again in Paul's letters, we meet Lydia, and uh, he gets to Philippi, and preaching in the synagogue, and there he meets Lydia, who is a Gentile woman, who's in the synagogue, which is a very common thing, but Lydia is the leader of her own prayer community. Uh, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Christian, not Christian yet. But she's gathered a community of people at the riverbank beyond the synagogue to continue something, but to pray to pray in some way, shape, or form um, that comes out of her heart, that her, her leadership, and perhaps her own inspiration. Uh, and she invites Paul to join them. And Paul joins them, and I, I got the sense that what Paul sees and hears isn't at all disturbing, except for the fact that these people have not heard the gospel proclaimed and that they are praising the God of the gospels. They are praying in the spirit. They are praying, you know, inspired in the same way. And I don't think Paul can take, take, see any difference between what he sees Lydia doing with this group of people who are Gentiles, but seeking God and what he would proclaim to them if he were preaching to them. So he baptizes them and confirms them. He doesn't even evangelize them. They have already been evangelized. And it looks like Lydia had done a pretty good job. And Lydia was no small, and Lydia was a pretty powerful force of nature, a wealthy woman, a merchant, um, uh, a trader in purple goods, and only the wealthy bought purple stuff. So Lydia was a, a, a known and significant member of her community. And perhaps from that role, before she's, she's evangelized, before she's baptized, she has gathered the body of Christ. 
and how, on the strength of her gathering the body of Christ, Paul walks in and says, well, this is easy. Everyone into the water. <laughs> Everyone into the pool, into the river. And he stays with them back and forth between the synagogue and Philippi and being part of Lydia's uh, household and Lydia's prayer community. And it's clear that Paul is not going to be the leader of this community. He's a nice adjunct, but Lydia is, is the convener of this community. She was the convener before the baptism of the community and before it received the Holy Spirit, but she had convened this community and prepared it to be incorporated into the body of Christ as if it weren't already incorporated into the body of Christ. And of course, there's some um, in the church of Corinth, uh, Paul refers to Chloe's people. Um, this, this word people will show up. It's like the churches were not, they weren't parishes. <laughs> you know, you didn't say I belong to St. You know, so-and-so. So it's like Chloe, I go to Chloe's house. Um, what community do you belong to? Well, Chloe's. And they, again, these may have been secret. They may have been, though they were pro pretty much probably people who hadn't, were so insignificant that nobody cared where they went in, in, in many ways, shape, or form. Um, but call, Paul meets the Corinthians. Uh, they are gathered by Chloe. Perhaps word of this, of, of this movement had reached him before Paul gets there. And Chloe may have been a force in gathering, just like Lydia was a force in gathering people to uh, find some, some way to feed their souls in the midst of a very dark world and to find some sustenance when you're not going to get any sustenance from anybody else. And they may already have been religious figures and leaders. And Paul finds them and witnesses somehow the outpouring of the Spirit into the Corinthian community. And this is the, the great, one of the great puzzles of, of the early church and, and the documentation that we have on it, because so much of this is a puzzle that we have to piece together. We don't have all the pieces. Um, and there's lots of blank spaces and lots of things showing up in there. Uh, but um, in the first part of Paul's letter to the first letter of the Corinthians, which he's writing to Chloe and her people, he has these magnificent phrases like, in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. And he goes on and he's even admonishing them around uh, sexual immorality and basically saying it'd be better if, it, 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 actually, everyone would be better off if nobody got married, but, you know, Paul, please. <laughs> um, but if you do have to get married and he sells out the rules and his rules are very much, if you're going to be married, forget about this Roman nonsense that the husband is the Lord and master of the household. Everyone is equal. Husbands are char in charge of your wives and wives you are in charge of your husbands. This is not a top-down thing. This is a mutuality thing. By the end of the letter of the Corinthians, it's a very different story. Um, and most scholars are wondering, did Paul write that? And saying, it doesn't look like he did where women are told to be silent and only the men can speak and only the men can teach. And that's true in some of the other letters that are attributed to Paul, but don't seem to be written by Paul much later things. 
but the ones, the letters written by Paul are profoundly respectful, not just in a, not in a patronizing way, acknowledging that in the spirit of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are many parts, but one body, and one part isn't more important than any other part. It all comes together and, and, and somehow or another and meshes together. And then later on, things are creeping in, possibly looking like very much influenced by the Roman culture of the day in which the male as the head of the household was supreme. And that's how the world was supposed to be ordered. And in the, in the pressure of the empire, that seeps in. But it does seem that for most of the first couple of centuries of the church's life, the church itself, what, what we call the church, were gatherings of people, perhaps drawn to some message of freedom, but pushed by an absolute abhorrence with the inhumanity and the indignity and the brutal force and violence that ruled the world. And we're told that this is how things are. And people possibly of all social classes, but maybe particularly the poor and the slaves were like from within their soul saying, no, no. But you couldn't say no out loud. Again, you're in a, in a, in a, in a culture that has absolutely no respect for human life and understands that power comes by the, by the willingness to inflict pain on human beings and to take their lives. And in that culture, which Jesus preached in as well, people say, wait a minute, there's got to be something. This cannot be. This is not who we are. And then they do hear that there's, you know, what, what we're seeing or, or what I think we're beginning to see yeah, there's these churches that Paul supposedly founded, but they're not the only communities of believers gathered. That all over the Mediterranean world, groups of people formed that referred to themselves as Jesus people. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were Jesus people. Maybe they were baptized, although that's not clear about that. What they were were people who said there was a voice a voice that speaks to the depths of our hearts that we've heard about. He was executed by the Romans, but his voice continues. He spoke the truth and he spoke to us in a way that leads us to freedom rather than to slavery. And so it seems like they were armed not with gospels and not with scriptures, but with stories passing around about from those who had met firsthand or those who'd heard about it, but somehow or another, this message of this Jesus who took the full force of the Roman, Roman violence. And maybe they were talking about he rose from the dead. He's more powerful than they are without lifting a finger. But somehow these people who have to work all day in a culture that's, you know, completely degrading them. We're gathering in the evenings.
not just to tell the stories, but to live differently. And among the things that seemed that they did differently was throw off the um, conventions, the Roman conventions of male superiority. And one of the great revolutionary actions of the Jesus peoples is the assertion of leadership by women and recognizing that and all sorts of experiments that may have been going on in terms of, wait a minute, the Romans do it this way. And that's the best reason we have in the world for not doing it that way. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's try something different. And there's even evidence that it was the fact that, uh, that what was calling attention to these communities as subversive was that women were in charge. Maybe it's all it's all a little bit murky. Um, you do know I told you I mentioned this this book to you the other night about um, after Jesus before Christianity. It's where some of this goes, and I have to I have to say that uh, the scholarship is pretty murky. It's interesting. Uh, the the sources are they're emerging with sources that are are kind of new and fresh and need to be vetted a lot more and maybe need to be augmented by more things that we might still find. Um, but it does, it does fill in some blanks that the, the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of Paul uh, don't quite tell the whole story. They can't be, that's a pretty, the sample size of what Paul did is pretty small, even though he went all the way to Rome. He didn't touch that many people on the way. There are a lot of other people that he missed. That somehow they were, Something was happening that, that was making the, the church the church. So one of the sources that, that they, they found was a, a letter from a Roman official called Pliny, uh, Pliny the Younger, writing to the emperor Trajan, asking for advice. And he says, it is my custom to refer all my difficulties to you, sir, for no one is better able to resolve my doubts and to inform my ignorance. I have never been present at an examination of Christiani. Consequently, I do not know the nature or extent of the punishments usually meted out to them, nor the grounds for starting an investigation and how far it should be pressed. And then his letter goes on to say that he's heard about these examinations and the testimony uh, against the testimony that the Romans were using to be suspicious of the Christians came as a result of torture. And the people tortured were two women who were slaves, who were clearly leaders, officials of this subversive community. And the authors here kind of said, the women thing is a little bit surprising, but not nearly as much as the fact that they were slaves. Because while the Romans didn't think women were really full persons, they didn't think slaves were even human. And yet, in this community that they find of these people calling, that are calling themselves Christiani, the officials are not only women, but they're slaves, which is completely subversive in this country. Then um, they get all that. Then there's, they, they talk about this, uh, finding, so we, I mean, we have the canonical scriptures. We have the four Gospels, and yet we know there are more Gospels than those four. 
some of them are interesting, some of them are just really weird. So maybe there's reason why they didn't all make it into the canon. Um, but there was a selection process going on. Uh, there are other sources of, of, of things that, of, about the early church. So um, they talk about a document that was found, a fragment of a document that was found at the end of the 19th century um, called the Gospel of Mary. I'm not sure which Mary it's talking about. Is it Mary, the mother of Jesus? Is it Mary Magdalene? Is it any other of the countless Marys that show up even in the scriptures? Um, but it talks about how, and the, it's only a fragment, so the beginning of it is missing. But then it tells this, this story. Um, it starts in the middle of a teaching about the nature of sin. The Savior as the anointed one is called in this, as the anointed one is called in this gospel, concludes his teaching and then departs, leaving his followers pained and weeping, despairing of their next move. How shall we go to the nations and proclaim the good news of the child of humanity? If they did not spare him, how will they spare us? The Savior's followers worry. As followers weep, Mary, it doesn't say which Mary, stands in the midst of this group of the Savior. She comforts and encourages them, exhorting them not to doubt, for the Savior's grace will be with you and shelter you. She then turned their heart to the good, and calming down, they begin to discuss the Savior's teachings. Peter asks Mary to teach them, saying, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of the women. Interesting. Not more than us, just more than the rest of the women. <laughs> Tell us the words of the Savior which you remember, which you know, and we do not, nor have we heard them. Mary obliges and begins to tell the followers of the, about a vision she had of the Savior and the Savior's response to that vision. Mary concludes her instruction. Andrew responds with disbelief. Certainly these teachings are strange ideas. He states, Peter, though he had asked Mary to teach them, then turns on her sneering. Did the Savior really speak with a woman without our knowing about it? Are we to turn around and all listen to her? Did he choose her over us? Mary weeps. My brother Peter, what are you thinking? She cries, do you think that I have thought this up myself in my heart or that I am telling lies about the Savior? Levi stands to support Mary. Levi, of course, is Matthew. Levi stands to support Mary, arguing. Peter, you have always been an angry person. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries, which would be empire. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you then to reject her? Surely the Savior's knowledge of her is trustworthy. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed. We shall clothe ourselves with the perfect human, acquire it for ourselves as he commanded us, and proclaim the good news, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what the Savior said. So Levi has the last word. After he speaks, the members of this group of the Savior go out and teach, and the gospel ends. So, unfortunately, that's on the fragment of an ancient text somehow on the papyrus. If only it had some, it only it had some infallible heft behind it. 
Like imagine somebody in that gathering had their iPhone out and recorded it. <laughs> and then posted it on social media so that the whole world could see it as, as the infallible truth being proclaimed. <laughs> My goodness, what, what, what that might do. Um, but at any rate, as we have all, you know, we have this, this murky, um, this murky un, unclear thing. We have sources that, you know, uh, are canonical and have been canonized and baptized by the church as in the inspired word of God that have internal contradictions in them, leaving us, is, is there neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, or should women cover their heads and shut up? Um, what's the story here? You know, uh, are men and women in marriage really equally called to serve one another? Or should wives be submissive to their husbands? It's always a fun reading from Ephesians when it shows up on Holy Family Sunday. And so many women have told me that, yeah, when that word gets proclaimed, my husband gets an elbow in the ribs like you never, <laughs> like, okay, that's great. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so you're there. Um, what we have been able to kind of discern a little bit, and still trying to figure this out, is that this mystery of the early church is indeed a mystery. We have far more reliable sources about the contained ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, even if they contradict each other sometimes. But, you know, these four Gospels, uh, all having different points of view and painting a slightly different picture of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, then nonetheless there's a pretty internal consistency among them which isn't always too difficult to resolve, although we should probably let the ambiguities keep us in tension a little bit more than they might. But the early church, we're given a, a picture from the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of St. Paul that it was a homogeneous, centrally operated system and that nothing happened throughout the entire Mediterranean world as churches were founded without the approval of the Council of Apostles in Jerusalem. Um, and apparently, the church was starting to spring up before any apostle ever showed up to preach. That the word about Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the, the Messiah, Jesus, the crucified and risen one, had spread somehow and was reaching these people who were themselves so starving for something that would speak of dignity and life and freedom and goodness in a world that said that none of that actually exists. It's only brute force and power and dominance that matters. And that this word of life kind of trickled into these communities um, and they were attracted to it. And an awful lot of the evidence is that the, those who gathered the people, those who became the focal points of people who wanted to be enriched by a different message than what the dominant culture was insisting everybody follow were women because no one would suspect them. They were not necessarily dangerous because, and yet they did. And the strength of women like Lydia and Chloe and countless unnamed women, and there are countless women who are named, and that's all we know are their names from the, the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of Paul. Um, were the ones who somehow or another uh, brought people together 
and eventually it took a few hundred years so we've got several generations of people who were not organized into the roman catholic church or the um the church of antioch or the church of alexandria the church of jerusalem or the great churches the patriarchal churches they are a third century development but somehow or another what gave, gave the word of god its seedbed you know seedbeds like you know we plant our gardens and you know, already grown tomato plants show up in the garden. But these seed beds and the greenhouses that start early and still in the winter to bring forth these plants that can then be planted in gardens. The seed bed, the greenhouses of the church, of the thing we know of the church, was a pretty disorganized mess. With the exception, the only thing that unified it was a thirst for something that would speak of life rather than death something that would speak of dignity and respect rather than degradation and humiliation something that would speak of freedom rather than slavery and the jesus people collected some of those stories and began sharing it with each other um, and then there's the you know sort of official how official all this was coming out of jerusalem and paul um, that's the story that we get as the official story, but there's much more to it than that. It has to be much more to it than that. And so we look at those kinds of things. One of the things that we do seem to, um, you know, there's, there's still the great question, like, you know, what was it that really allowed Christianity to spread and flourish and thrive in very difficult conditions? up until it becomes the official religion of the empire, but it was spreading. It was a force to be reckoned with. And some of the sociologists of that time will kind of point to what really made it spread. So people got married. And maybe it was the, the wife and the mother who had this influence of this message who then influenced husbands and raised children with a completely different value system than the prevailing value system of the roman empire and on the strength of marriage and family and mothering the gospel took root and spread and people were willing to die for it you know that, that sort of thing that was all happening but it didn't spread just on the preaching of apostles. It spread on um, the gathering of, of communities and then the filtering through families, which were being fed by communities that weren't necessarily organized. Anything other than people who had in possession, had in their possession the stories of this person named Jesus, who opposed all the values of the empire took all the power of the empire, received the full fury of the empire, and is still alive and, and living among us. Somehow or another, that, that, that's, I think, this, kind of the story of the early church. Um, in the first couple of centuries, it goes on, you know, martyrdoms and persecutions come and go, and certainly there were plenty of women who were 
who were martyred along with, with men, maybe more women than men were martyred. It's hard to tell. Um, we, we count them, but um, this, this movement, this Jesus movement uh, was much more of a, a, a movement of, of among people who just thirsted for life and thirsted for freedom. And it didn't care what gender you were. It did proclaim either Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, but you are one in Christ Jesus.